Take a minute to support Life of the Law. It's your donation that makes it possible for our team of journalists and scholars to produce and publish special episodes like the one you're about to hear. Whether it's $10, $20, $50, or $100, go to lifeofthelaw.org and support award-winning investigative journalism today and in years to come. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, please the court. Who actually gets to classify what is a crime and what is not a crime? What is the next potential ramp-up with the potential expansion of, pri- of the privatization of prisons? This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. In just a minute, we're going to go in studio for a conversation about locking people up in our society. But first... Tony Gannon, our senior producer, and I traveled to Mexico City to join hundreds of scholars for the Law and Society Association's annual meeting. And who better to ask about concerns about the law in our society? So we asked. I think 2017 has showed us actually the urgency of both social action and legal mobilization. Although law is often corrupted in times of emergency and crisis, it's also used as a tool for mobilization. I always have concerns about the law. From from my research um, uh, site, the law in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo is a very contentious issue. There's been a lot of investment in building the rule of law, but in a way that hasn't necessarily mapped on to people's needs and lived experiences. And I think that's always a risk when we're talking about building law, creating law, modernizing law in um, post-colonial and post-conflict settings. So I think that's something that we need to continue to interrogate. When you see one-third of the Canadian population in prisons being Indigenous, and that being even higher for Indigenous women, I don't think we can separate politics from law from many of the social problems that we see. But I think, in my opinion, uh, there's, um, in the whole democracies in the world, there's a lot of citizens that do not believe in law at all. So I think that Perhaps law has a value in the past that it's not having, uh, 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 having in the present. And many people, at least in my country, uh, do not trust in the law. Because if, even though there are representatives and senators passing laws that have been passed, and, uh, and they, they, they didn't know that they have passed the same law. So when a thing like, like that happened, I think that's a big uh, trouble, you know, with the value of the law. Um, the problem with the law in society is that there's the law in the books and then there's the law in practice. And there's a variance between the law in the books and the law in practice. We have very many laws in the books, but their implementation to change um, the lives of people in society is quite problematic. Uh, we have very many laws, we have very many government institutions to enforce the laws, but the laws are just not being enforced. So uh, that's the reason why we have so many laws to deal with poverty, for example, so many laws to ensure people have access to resources, but we have uh, several people still living in poverty, several people still living in destitution, 
and we have several people with rights who are not able to access their rights because there's a law in the books and the law in the practice and there's variance between the law in the books and the law in practice. I think Trump uh, has upended things in the United States, but maybe it's our cue to marginalize the United States and start listening a little more to the rest of the world. Uh, it's just strange and amazing that the, the, the um, theme of the LSA conference this year was about borders. And here we are on the other side of the border, interacting with Mexican society, the people living here, the culture here, trying to speak Spanish. My main concern is the current administration and the that it just looks on the ground like we have completely abandoned the rule of law. Uh, democratic institutions are failing and not keeping our executive in check. We seem to be turning into an authoritarian regime and there seems to be relatively little we can do about it. We're starting to see successes at the margins. Um, we have courts and joining the Muslim ban, and that's great news. But we also are about to have a repeal of a health care plan that is going to be a major shift from poor people to rich people, and, uh, and our democratic institutions are failing and not able to keep it from happening. The photographs of lawyers in airports volunteering their time and services um, to people trying to get back, legally get back into the country, uh, to me that is, uh, that's a symbol, an image of the greatness that our American legal system and our American constitution is capable of. And so I'm here uh, shoring myself up for the next year until I can come back uh, to fight the fight in my scholarship and fight the fight in my community. The other issue that I'm concerned about, which have, has been discussed in some of the panels that I've attended, is whether um, there is enough recourse within the current legal system to quickly enough correct the injustices within our criminal justice system. So broadly, those are my concerns. My most immediate concern is about the prospect of expanding deportation numbers because I've been witness to the consequences of deportation under President Obama's leadership and I'm quite concerned about what may unfold in the coming years. Um, I am uh, an African-American historian um, and uh, we can see throughout American history um, an inequity in the justice system for black residents of the country and uh, recent events um, in uh, American jurisprudence have demonstrated that the more things have changed, uh, the more things have stayed the same um, and that there are historical continuities uh, that have redounded to us today from, from times that we like to consider much more vicious and much more racist. Um, and as those inequities become more subtle but still very much entrenched, um, I'm interested at the, the conference to learn more about how um, uh, we can parse those out and uh, bring them more to the surface in a society that tries to, uh, maybe not intentionally, but hides them through um, uh, plausible deniability in various different ways. Well, we're, we have a presidency that is clearly uh, 
playing fast and loose with the law in the United States. And we have a society that's failing to react. And so we're seeing the, the um, challenges that creates on questions of immigration and racial justice, uh, the way Mexicans have been criminalized. And so our biggest hope, or my biggest hope, is to find a way to participate in the resistance to that. And whether lawyers can find a way to participate in a resistance that makes it so that that sort of criminalization, that sort of oppression, uh, doesn't happen with the law as a supporter of the problem. It should be a, a part of the solution, as not part of the problem, in my view. <laughs> That's an interesting question, as I can't vote yet. Um, but I would say that it's about representation and about the way we discuss and talk about law. Um, I presented on legal history, in particular through cartoons. And I really found that there were real gaps in narratives and real gaps in discussing legal history and, I mean, even history going forwards, how we discuss our future. Um, so my concerns are really about the way we, we talk about it in an open way, um, but making sure that narrative is accurate. My school is unique in some sense in that I have friends at other schools who do not, do not discuss the way the law operates. And as a result, I think we're being raised to be misinformed citizens. And when we come to vote, we're going to be going in not understanding how the legal system works. And that's really concerning to me. I guess more integration um, between the law and society, law keeping up with the changing needs of society. Um, I think law necessarily moves a lot slower than some of the changes that we tend to make um, elsewhere. And so probably my biggest concern is just making sure that we have laws, that we have a system of laws that is responsive and consistently responsive to our evolving needs, which is, I think, a pretty common challenge. My work has to do with uh, rape law, the anti-rape movement, and incarceration, and how recent reforms are redefining women's relationship with sex in a way that's not altogether positive. Um, I, of course, am very concerned that we elected a pro-sexual assault president. Nonetheless, I see this dialogue constructing sex as a site of danger and trauma, particularly, particularly for women, continuing apace, if not being heightened by Trump's presidency. And on the one hand, that can lead to greater awareness of the problem of rape and sexual assault and deter rapes and sexual assault. But what I also see on college campuses and outside of college campuses, it's also constructing uh, sexual interactions as necessarily a site of grave risk which isn't altogether incompatible with a conservative view of sex and all the negative sort of things with abortion and contraception that come along with that. We are in a moment where political rhetoric, um, and I think this has been going on for a while, but certainly has crystallized into terms that are really challenging what we think are some of our most basic principles of law. It's relevant to me that our president, for the first president in, 20th, since it, uh, in the last 100 years, never mentioned rights, rule of law, or justice in his inaugural speech, which is just a way to capture that there's a real transformation going on in how we talk about our politics. I think it is a debasing of basic liberal principles, and I think that has a significant impact on the possibilities for people mobilizing around rights and the promise of legal equality. 
So I think that we all are in a process of adjustment to what we've taken for granted for a long period of time, that people can claim rights, and that that provides a little bit of leverage in trying to increase justice. We may be in a period where that is no longer a viable politics. Although that's probably overstating it, this may be a passing fad too. I think that's one of the questions. Is there something really big going on here, or are we in a moment that's, that's uh, just a momentary diversion? You've been listening to voices of scholars at the recent Law and Society Association's annual meeting in Mexico City. We asked them to share their thoughts about law and society in 2017. If you'd like to share your thoughts, send an email to us at connect at lifeofthelaw.org and we'll post them in our upcoming newsletter. Now for our very special in-studio conversation about people, prisons, and incarceration in America. More than two and a half million people are locked up in America's prisons. How did we get here as a society? Is what we're doing working? And where do we go from here? We asked people who have studied prisons and who have experienced incarceration to join us in the studios of KQED to talk about locking people up. In studio today, I'm joined by Osagi Obasagi, Life of the Law's board member and a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Hi, Nancy. Hey. Troy Williams is the founder of the San Quentin Prison Report. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Troy. And I'd like to introduce Rebecca McLennan. She's the author of The Crisis of Imprisonment, and she's a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you for having me. Karamet Ryder is from UC Irvine, and she's the author of 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. Great to be here, Nancy. Professor Ashley Rubin is from the University of Toronto, and she writes on the history of punishment in America and England. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Heather Thompson is the author of Blood in the Water, the Attica Rebellion of 1971 and its Legacy. She's also a professor at the University of Michigan. Great to be here, Nancy. Thank you all for joining us today. And I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you, what does it mean to be a historian, to be a scholar, to be formerly incarcerated, to look at where we are today in the United States with two and a half million people in our prisons? How did we get here? Where are we going? And what have we learned? I'm Heather Thompson. And I think the way we can first start this conversation is to realize that Prisons in America today, and certainly how many people we have incarcerated, uh, nearly two and a half million people and uh, seven and a half million people under some form of correctional control, is completely abnormal. It is uh, it is something that the society chose to do in the last 40 years, uh, and it has had tremendously negative consequences for communities and for individuals and for families. And so uh, as scholars and as historians and as citizens, um, we really feel that it's important to kind of deconstruct the question of how we got here because it was a, it was a policy choice and it's something that we need to understand the origins of so that we might undo it. This is Ashley Rubin. Um, I would add that the, in addition to mass incarceration being historically and internationally unprecedented, it's also important to keep in mind that the prison itself is a relatively new institution. We didn't have the prison for all of human history. We've used incarceration a bit here and there over time, but the prison as we know it as this modern carceral facility or cellular facility is really something that emerged after the American Revolution and especially in the early 19th century. So overall, as a human institution, it's relatively new, and mass incarceration is just the latest episode. But what did we have before 
as cellular institutions, which I, I think means an institution with cells in it. Exactly. So before that, we had colonial jails, but they didn't have cells. They were basically these big rooms that people just were held in, in, in like together, undifferentiated men and women, old people and young people, um, vagrants and debtors, as well as people awaiting trial and people awaiting their punishments. Um, jails weren't really a place of punishment. They were basically an administrative apparatus. So we didn't really have cellular confinement. Um, we had cells in monasteries and um, initially some hospitals, but the prison as a cellular facility was new after the American Revolution, and even then, not really until the early 19th century with the uh, the creation of the Auburn State Prison that Rebecca studies and Eastern State Penitentiary that I study. So what was the spark that made a society create cellular institutions? Well, the penitentiary, the House of Repentance, uh, the non-cellular House of Repentance that was uh, built first in Philadelphia and then in New York and other states after the American Revolution, uh, was a pretty riotous institution. It wasn't accepted by those um, uh, convicts who were uh, sent there. Um, to, uh, uh, to to labor and to, to live their lives out. Uh, and it was constantly in uproar. There was a, a complete failure of control on the part of the of the state. And uh, the um, local militias were called out repeatedly to restore order at these penitentiaries. And uh, eventually the U.S. Army was even called out to the Walnut Street Penitentiary in the late 1810s. And so what we find is mid-level administrators uh, at these penitentiaries start experimenting with uh, cellular forms and other kind, cellular architecture and other um, disciplinary forms uh, in, an, in an effort to uh, assume greater control over institutions that essentially were being run by the uh, inmates, as they called themselves at that time. This is Karamet Ryder. That's a really interesting theme in the history of, of prisons in, in the last few centuries, is the experiments that mid-level administrators run in institutions where they have populations that are really challenging to difficult, challenging to deal with, and, and they're not quite sure how to manage them, and they run these experiments. And those that's been the source of a number of problems over, over the history of incarceration, whether it was in those earliest penitentiaries or it was challenges with uh, revolts or uprisings in prisons in the 1970s or today its challenges with the seriously mentally ill being overrepresented in prison, and mid-level administrators are often left to manage those populations as, as best they can. And, and I would add that uh, many of uh, the um, most oppressive features of the 19th century prison systems, as well as the kinds of uh, maximum security prisons that uh, Karamit Reiter works on. Uh, many of those most oppressive features were never run through legislatures. They, are not, they were not the result of democratic deliberation. They were the result of administrators uh, trying to gain and retain control over their institutions. So there is a really profound question there about um, the role of, um, uh, of a non-democratic agencies and uh, forms of power um, in influencing um, the, the quality of convicts' lives. This is Troy Williams, and I think we also have to add to that conversation the role of politicians in criminalizing um, ordinary activities that would not otherwise be criminal. 
right? And, it's, and making drug use a criminal act or um, making the um, petty theft um, a, a sentence that's in, um, punishable by life in prison, um, which exasperated the, the prison boom, which, which contributed to the, the prison boom um, in the 80s and 90s. I would also add the flip side of that is not criminalizing other activities. So, for example, there's an awesome uh, Life of the Law episode about marital rape and how it um, and other forms of rape that weren't actually criminalized um, until really late in the, the 20th century. So not criminalizing the acts of the powerful. So, for example, so many things that caused the 2008 uh, recession haven't been criminalized or haven't been uh, prosecuted to the extent they could be, while at the same time going after more petty offenses or things Absolutely. that people don't necessarily agree are, are crimes, like drug, uh, drug offenses. So if the cellular institution was an attempt to further control individuals that we were punishing, um, where did that get us? Heather? Well, I would actually, uh, I would like to, to um, think about institutions of confinement, not just as uh, evolving over time to produce greater control within themselves, that is to say, greater control of the people who have already been convicted of a, a, of certain offense, but that prisons throughout American history have been these very political institutions that respond to social upheaval on the outside of the walls. In other words, that prisons, prison populations expand and, and contract uh, in no small part to do with issues of control outside of prisons. So, for example, as Troy mentions, uh, what becomes designated a crime or who is designated the criminal is very historically bound. And so, uh, for example, you know, as a real response to the successes of black freedom struggles after the Civil War, there was a real desire to criminalize otherwise uh, ordinary black behavior. And so, of course, you know, overnight we see the Georgia State Penitentiary not only getting much bigger, but uh, going from being all white to all black almost overnight, not because uh, because white folks stopped committing um, uh, offenses and not because black folks lost their mind, but because this was a political response to, uh, you know, th threats to the threats to the political order, or at least perceived threats. And, and you know, and likewise, as, as prisons evolve over time, you can really think about um, understanding what happens to them in terms of what's happening outside of them, right? Who is seen as threatening? I mean, not just prisons, by the way, but of course, detention centers, um, internment camps. I mean, this is not, we, we tend to talk about prisons as, as if this is about crime, and fluctuating crime rates. But one of the things that um, coming at this from the perspective of a historian gives us is to understand, uh, ironically, how little it has to do with crime and how much it has to do with the social circumstances and political circumstances well outside of the prison. And this is Osagi. And just to add on to the point that you just made, Heather, which I think is really important, you know, one in the uh, current political moment where there's been a renewed attention to police behavior and police activity, you know, you've seen various responses on social media in terms of how to be critical of what's happening. And one of the more interesting responses has been the Twitter hashtag criming while white. And this, is, has, this has been used by white individuals who have engaged in quote unquote criminal behavior, have interacted with the police and miraculously nothing happened. And it's a really interesting, I think, um, example of how, um, as you were saying, this is this type of policing is not about behaviors that are being criminal. Rather, it's about controlling certain populations and letting other populations um, go on about their business. And so this idea of population control, yeah, I think is key. And I think it's important to link that 
notion of population control to the long kind of eugenic history we have in this country from the <coughs> dating back to the late 19th, early 20th century as this kind of political movement to uh, use law and policy to make sure that certain populations are held under control because these populations are deemed as, quote unquote, um, unnatural or feeble-minded or bad or other type of criminal um, activities that might occur in these populations and using that as an excuse to for the state to engage in certain repressive policies and repressive behaviors as a way to, in a sense, weed those populations out. And so we can think of the current iteration of mass incarceration as an extension of these eugenic ideologies. And I think that framework allows us to have a, a deeper understanding of how, as you were saying, this is, has very little to do with criminal behavior, but more about the state's long-term interest in making sure that certain populations are held in check. Uh, this is Rebecca McLennan. Um, I, I totally agree. And uh, I, I think also we... Um, need to take into account the ascent of uh, neoliberal politics uh, in this country and elsewhere around the world in the in the 1970s, wherein um, other uh, kinds of programs um, in welfare and education are also uh, cut dramatically as the state becomes involuted, as government becomes involuted and becomes more and more associated with the with the with the carceral, and um, uh, there is a kind of withdrawal from the social in run, one respect, uh, but then a violent clamping down on society in in another respect. And I think that those two movements are really important to bear in mind. They are in relationship with each other. And I think just to further that point, when you know, at the current moment right now, we're using we're seeing crime being used by the current administration to control a particularly undesired population from at least released from perspective of those in power right now, and that is undocumented uh, individuals. And so it's another example of this, you know, the recent conversation we're having right now of how crime, how the how the conversation about crime ha often has very little to do with the actual behaviors, but use as an excuse to make sure that certain quote-unquote undesirable populations are weeded out from the from the centers of, uh, of society. And, the, and those laws can actually be um, traced back to the quote-unquote um, emancipation of slaves in this country, where immediately after vagrancy laws were used, loitering laws were used, then came the black codes, then came Jim Crow, and we just uh, study this this transformation of, of how this op oppressive um, um, treatment of certain populations or segments inside of the United States of America happen. Um, and so I think we have to uh, take a look at how this is um, transforming into other areas um, as well these days. Yes, uh, Troy, you make an, an excellent point. Um, I, th I think it's also important uh, to and it's a role that historians can play, which is to remind us of the really remarkable ex and progressive experiments that took place with, in criminal justice um, after the Black Codes were overturned and during the period of radical reconstruction uh, down to 1877, from about 1867 to 1877, where we had the world's first interracial democracy in the southern states, not in the northern states. We had over 200 African-American men serving in legislatures. We had African-American uh, sheriffs, judges and juries. Even the Texas Rangers were integrated racially during that period. Of course, uh, with re with uh, the Democratic Party's redemption, so-called, of the South, that was all knocked down and we get the convict lease. Uh, but for a period of um, about 10 years, there was a series of ex experiments uh, that that basically put the country, or at least the South, on a different route. Uh, and that route was um, to, to use uh, 
incarceration, which was a model borrowed from the North, to uh, educate and train um, uh, offenders uh, in order for them to become artisans uh, or uh, small farmers uh, to essentially uh, edu- educate rather than to, to punish them. And this was an, uh, largely a non-punitive rehabilitative model that uh, anticipated um, 20th century re- the 20th century reform movement associated with progressives, and it's something that um, a lot of folks don't know about. And uh, of course, it was it collapsed and was overturned um, through violence at the polls uh, through the 1870s, um, and um, it only was it only existed for a very short time. But that history is really important as, as well, I think, for us to remember that this is a path not taken ultimately, but it is a path that still could be taken. And I think that's a really important point, just to put this in historical context in terms of understanding the, the role of racial politics in this. And what I mean by that is, you know, we can think of mass incarceration as the most recent iteration of resegregation. That is, mass, mass incarceration, given its racial disparities, is basically taking large populations of brown individuals, black and brown individuals, and placing them in the spaces apart from the um, the, the primary neighborhoods where they would be, or where they would be in closer proximity with with other uh, Americans. And if you, if from that framework, what what we get is a sense of how um, this. This allows for certain conversations about race and crime to fester in a way that it allows certain elites in power to make certain statements about the other. That is, that when uh, it is perceived that crime is primarily located in certain black and brown communities, and, and that creates the quote-unquote need to segregate them from the rest of society, that then that then allows for um, certain political statements to be said that, are, that can be seen as uh, opportunities to congeal power by breeding fear. So you can imagine, as you were saying, this, this, these kind of, kind of these, these these moments where you had experiments after the Civil War, where people were kind of playing with these ideas of more integrated spaces, um, that fell apart very quickly across a lot of different social spaces. In part because that uh, was uh, the process of integration can be threatening to the ability of elites to maintain power. And so this is all to say that there's a tremendous amount of power that's leveraged by engaging in a form of racial politics that breeds fear. And by incarcerating people by the millions, um, particularly disproportionately black and brown, it recreates a perception that these people are dangerous and that they, the need for the state to be punitive as a way for at least to create and maintain hold on to power in an unchecked manner. I think it's also important that um, just to be really specific about how that process that you just um, outlined happens. It's not it's not natural. It's not inevitable. These are very concrete decisions made by very concrete individuals at these moments in history that if we don't really focus in on that, I know that there will be listeners who think, well, you know, this all sounds relatively fuzzy, right? I mean, so prisons are always just this kind of fuzzy response to social control and and they've nothing to do with crime and, you know, come on now. And I think we can be really, really specific when we look at various moments in history. So, for example, when we started this crime buildup uh, and prison buildup, 
up. And I say both together because I think incarceration, we have a lot of evidence that incarceration actually has criminogenic uh, features. It actually creates violence. It creates distress in communities. But what's really interesting is most citizens don't understand that we began that war on crime before we had a so-called crime problem. We actually started the war on crime with the, the apparatus that made the war on crime possible uh, in 1964 and 1965 when uh, the murder rate was historically completely unremarkable. It had been much higher in the 20s and the 30s. We, uh, we did not see a real uptick in violent crime until substantially after we had begun the war on crime. And uh, so it, that's a moment we can look at. So what, then what happened? And what, and what we see very clearly is that this is another one of those moments. You've mentioned the Civil War and or really, and Rebecca's right, really specifically the response to, to, to Reconstruction or the response to, to um, really powerful experiments in democracy and equality. Similarly, the Civil Rights 60s was another one of those moments, really powerful moments of uh, civil rights uh, victory and uh, victory for um, black politics and uh, equality. And you know, so it is not coincidental that yet again, sort of as a as a political response to those threatening qualities of equality, uh, we see the buildup of a carceral state. And and if we can get really specific about what causes it, um, you know, I think we can perhaps imagine a different response to those same kinds of uh, moments of possibility. And um, and if we forget that that crimes are not something natural, right? That everything, I mean, these are political designations. What is a crime in one decade is not a crime in another. What is, I mean, even something like killing someone else, depending on the circumstances, depending on the moment, depending on who the the offender and the victim are. I mean, these are all deeply uh, bound in the moment. And and so even today, we're, we're thinking about, uh, you know, this new law and order moment, perhaps with this new ele- uh, this new election. And and um, it really behooves us to think about. So 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 what do we mean when we say something is a crime and who are we targeting? And and, and we have to really be clear about these things. Absolutely. And who. Who actually, um, in agreement, in total agreement, who actually gets to classify what is a crime and what is not a crime and how, what is the next potential ramp up with um, the potential expansion of of the privatization of prisons, right? And so things will um, potentially get labeled to be criminal. And then, therefore, they can they can be classified in that category. And then that would justify building more prisons because we need to lock criminals up. And Heather, I think you also made a really interesting point in terms of, you know, what I hear you saying is that at these historical moments where things are moving in a direction towards a more diverse and inclusive society, we see the political response, which is to find ways to uh, use crime as a way to resegregate society and to produce the need, uh, or at least to produce the political perception that uh, certain groups need to remain separate from one another. And that has a, a certain racial effect. That is crime as a way to maintain the kind of racial hierarchy, the racial status quo, so that certain benefits flow upwards to uh, those in power and certain burdens continue to exist around or with racial right. minorities. Sadly, not necessarily in any a kind of draconian, very clear-cut sense. Unfortunately, this is all very muddy in the moment, right? It's, it's uh, you know, when Lyndon Johnson passed the, uh, you know, the, the created the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which the apparatus that essentially will make this all possible, what we see today, this 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 buildup in 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 uh, prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, he wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying, you know, oh, my God, uh, we have a real equality problem. In fact, he, in fact, he was simultaneously passing the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And in, in fact, he was simultaneously standing with civil rights uh, uh, at the same time. So how do we understand that? Well, what we understand is that when when people were protesting in southern cities in this time period, it was very easy for northern politicians to look southward and say, you know, oh, I get it. We need to stand with civil rights. You know, all those racist white southern crackers, you know, they need to be reined in. But all of a sudden, when Philly is exploding and, and Baltimore and, and, and Rochester and, and, and in Harlem, um, northern politicians and federal politicians found it very uncomfortable that they were now uh, under scrutiny for their civil rights, uh, the, the reality of the civil rights inequities in the North. And so then all of a sudden they start using a, a language of crime, just like Sheriff Bull Connor did, right? Um, disorder then becomes crime. Um, unrest becomes crime. Um, and so um, if it were easy, right, if we could see that if, if some of these politicians admitted, yes, we're doing this to segregate communities, um, then we could perhaps have a more coherent response to it. But unfortunately, it's never presented that way. It's presented as fear. It's presented as um, we, we need order. And order is a very uh, loaded term that can take us in a lot of directions. So if I can play devil's advocate for a moment, because I'd imagine there are some listeners who are uh, observing this conversation and saying, are they really saying that crime is socially constructed? Who are these academic eggheads who are so <laughs> detached from the world that they don't realize that there are bad people in the world who are doing harmful things to others, and those people need to be separated from everyone else for the health and safety of the community? Um, is crime really a social construction? So I want to give us all an opportunity to address that. So if I can go ahead and answer that, um, I think rape is a really good example of how crime is socially constructed. So for example, um, and I apologize, I'm going to be a little graphic here. Um, rape is, of course, a very violent and terrible thing, but it can refer to a lot of different things. And a lot of times for most people, rape means basically a man forcing himself to have sexual intercourse with a woman. Um, but for a long time, we didn't recognize other types of rape that are really just as traumatic. Um, so, for example, uh, not penile rape, but object-based rape or anal rape rather than vaginal rape. In a lot of cases, these aren't actually crimes or haven't been crimes. And these are things that are still completely terrible, but they haven't been criminalized or they haven't been treated as rape. So I think that would be an example of how really something that's horrible and a crime uh, isn't actually recognized as a crime. I would argue, I would put forth that I think what is the the social construction part of it is that how we think about a thing, right? And so in some countries, the person who who is abuses drugs, that is a public health problem. It is not necessarily considered a crime. So you're on drugs, whatever type that drug may be, we have a public health problem that doesn't necessitate a criminal act, right? Um, I think the construction, the social construction part of it is when you have somebody who, and I know too many people to count, who make, have gotten caught smoking or with a nickel bag of crack or something to that effect, and they're serving a life sentence in prison. So here we is, we like that thought process has been constructed by the way in which society has been educated on how to treat this problem. 
So the person who might use crack cocaine to self-medicate a health problem who ends up in jail is treated differently than a person who may use some or some type of uh, pharmaceutical drug and may abuse it. And, is, and then the response to that person is to give them help and treatment. And this, and this whole construction part is how a, how a society chooses to respond to otherwise very similar behaviors. Absolutely. And, and in addition, the other part of your question um, also is that, you know, I'm somebody who spent 25 years inside a prison. Uh, yes, there are people who are of a, a danger to society, and and that that is one thing. The other part of it is what you just talked about. I think it's possibly helpful here to introduce a distinction because there um, are a lot of different conceptions of what con social construction as as a term means, and perhaps it's useful for us to think about the difference between uh, social interpretation and social construction. So how any given action is interpreted and labeled by law as a crime or not a crime is that, that that's a very clear kind of analysis, uh, right? So I think social interpretation is really important. But then there's another kind of social construction, which is how a society is organized, not merely its criminal uh, uh, system, uh, but also including its criminal system, how a society is organized, how it distributes its wealth, uh, how it prior what its priorities um, are as far as social goods are concerned, um, how it distributes resources of all kinds, including honor. Um, uh, not only material resources, uh, constructs the, or at least sits in, in motion and makes much more probable certain kinds of behavior and action, which then will be socially interpreted either as crime or not crime, or, or, or not even interpreted at all. Not all social activity is, is subject to interpretation, right? Mm. So there is a way in which society constructs uh, or at least makes much more probable certain kinds of behavior, which then it's likely to ju adjudicate as being crime or not crime. Uh, so I, I think that that term social construction, we just need to unpack it a little bit and be very clear about how we're using it. Those are just two examples of how to use it. I also think that, and, and I, I'll just... Um you know, uh, pick up on this broader question of, you know, <laughs> I liked the way you framed it, you know, that people will interpret what some of us are saying as the, these eggheads who are just failing to recognize the harm that's being created out there and, and, and are being unrealistic about uh, about what the response to that would, could look like. And I would say that, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about looking at how we've responded to, and I won't use the word crime, but I will say harmful acts over... American history, and let's be broader, let's say over world history, um, it is it, it sort of extraordinary our lack of imagination in this country as to how we have actually handled things that we would probably all agree are harmful acts. In other words, let's step aside for, from, for a second about whether or not something is a crime or not a crime or whether or not it was in 1960 but isn't anymore. Just if we could agree about that there are certain things that are harmful to other human beings that happen, and we would all agree that that does happen, and we would all agree that there must be some social response to it. Um, we have an extraordinary lack of imagination about what that would be. And when we look at other countries, when we when we look at how other people deal with social harm, we realize not only, uh, I think Rebecca's point is really powerful, that we are not doing a very good job on the front end to prevent those kinds of harmful acts, right? We are not doing what we know works, like investing in education or investing in healthcare or food distribution or uh, neighborhoods, uh, neighborhood cohesion. Um, 
But we're also not doing a very good job on the back end. So once a harm has been committed, we actually exacerbate that harm. We actually take the person who has done something harmful and we make them uh, more uh, likely to be harmful in the future, not less. We make them, we make them, we, we create harm. We as a society then create harm on them, which in turn does not generate a, a safer society. So if we're interested in public safety, and I think this is really what we're talking about, if we're interested in public safety, we could not be going about it in a more backward fashion. And, and to tie this back more, more specifically to mass incarceration today, I think it's helpful to think about this question of is crime socially constructed or not. I often think of it in two parts, and this relates to studying I- extreme punishments like long-term solitary confinement, where I think both mass incarceration and long-term solitary confinement tend to be incredibly overused. And I think there's beginning to be agreement about that. So there's this sort of first-level question of, well, are we, are we too broad in our construction of what constitutes a crime? And are there lots of people in prison who haven't committed the kind of social harm you're highlighting. And so then you get down to a much smaller number, but you're left still with a tough population of people who have perhaps committed social harms. And this is, you know, you see this especially in solitary confinement as states try to reform those policies. And the states that are really working to reform them are left with maybe a few dozen people who are seriously mentally ill or have committed seriously violent crimes. Uh, and that's where there are, there are these tough questions. And I think, Heather, your point is, is really well taken that we just aren't very creative about thinking about how to answer those but our lack of creativity creates all kinds of social problems because the vast majority of people, 95% or more, get out of prison eventually, uh, even out of solitary confinement. Exactly. And just to support that, which just personal, because I'm, I'm somebody, I didn't go to the penitentiary for being a nice guy. I'm not somebody who can claim innocence or claim that my crime wasn't violent. I was a violent, gun-toting, gang-banging idiot, right? Um, but I did not learn how to empathize with others until others began to empathize with me, right? And that's what helped transform my life. It wasn't people trying to be hard or be mean or be like punishment and tough with me because I knew how to, I, I can be tough with the, with the best tough person in the world, right? But it was people who tapped into that soft side, that authentic side of me that helped transform my life, right? And so if we really want to talk about public safety, and I used to ask people this question, like, like who do you want coming home? <laughs> Do you want Bone, the big, bad gangbanger coming home, right? Or do you want Troy, the aspiring filmmaker, um, the, the guy who's coming home and going to help work with other people and other kids in society so that they don't follow down the path he went down? Because one of us are coming home, mm-hmm. right? And so society has to figure out which one they want, which one actually, which method actually, in, in support of what you said, which method actually contributes to public safety. Well, and, and Troy, your story makes another really important point, which is that whatever you did 20 or 30 years ago, you're now sitting at a table in a <laughs> recording studio with a lot of people around you who feel incredibly comfortable because you're a very different person. And Absolutely. I think that's true of a lot of people. And it's another piece of the system we often forget that that one act doesn't define you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Well, Thank and also you. this lack of imagination is not, I mean, even, I mean, to get to an earlier part of the discussion we were having about race in America, our lack of imagination is also very loaded because of of course, you know, upper middle class white families have no lack of imagination when their own family members commit harm and when their own family members are drug addicted or when their own family members are uh, off the right path, right? Um, the response is to mobilize every resource you have to help that individual uh, either see the air of their ways or get the help that they need or uh, or get uh, a different vision of themselves. I mean, we, we, we have all kinds 
kinds of ways in which we respond to crisis uh, when we have the ability to do so in our own families. But if it's someone else's family Mm -hmm. and if it's someone else's children, then it's really easy to see those people as disposable, or at least it is for so many uh, citizens in this country. And and so, you know, it seems to me that um, the question while it is important to make the distinction uh, that that crime is indeed very political and that prisons are socially and politically constructed, it's also important to have a discussion about how do we imagine dealing even with the most egregious, the most painful, the most horrendous things that can happen. And I, I just really quickly, I do an ex- I do this uh, exercise in my with my own students, and I ask them to imagine uh, first the person that they love the most in their life, and that could be anybody, their child, their 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 partner, their their mother. And I asked them to imagine something absolutely horrific happening to that person that they love. And, and then what would they want to do to the offender? And you can imagine the the responses, right? These these really kind of horrific responses to what they would want to do. But then I asked them to imagine that same person that they love more than anything, that they were the one that committed that horrific harm. Then what would you want to do? And, and you can just see on people's faces as they struggle with this. And what always happens is they never want to lock them up for the rest of their life. They never want to torture them. They never want to put them in solitary confinement. They never want to give them the death penalty. What they always begin with, and I find this so interesting, is they want to know why. Why did you commit this horrible thing? And what can I do to both help you make restitution, but also to make you whole again? And so it brings back to our own families. What would you do with the person you love the most? It also brings it back to social empathy and the project for transformation, liberation of our current very sorry state, Um, the need for... um, the production of much greater social empathy and the, the establishment of empathetic ties um, uh, between and within communities that, ha- that have had very little empathy for each other. Um, and I, I think that's a real challenge, how, how to do that. Um, I'm just a historian, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, you know, I'd be very interested in hearing from, uh, from you all uh, uh, you know, your ideas about how we can uh, uh, expand social empathy, which seems absolutely uh, well, one thing would be proximity, essential. because I know that for all of us who are sitting around this table who have spent a lot of time inside of prisons, one of the reasons why it is very difficult, I think, for all of us around this this table to imagine uh, one-size-fits-all solutions to uh, justice issues or even to social harm and trauma is because we've actually met the people uh, whom this uh, impacts. And uh, we we know that those are actually human beings inside, no matter what brought them there. And we know from proximity that uh, that that hardcore political prognoses do not really uh, play out the way we would imagine them to. So right now, prisons are, are public institutions, and not one listener here can tell you what is going on inside of them. Uh, but imagine them if they were transparent cubes in the middle of every city we live in, and we could actually see what happened inside. So it, it just as a thought exercise, um, we don't have empathy because we don't. We are we are so cut off from the very institutions that we imagine are doing justice in our name. And part of that proximity, absolutely, and 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 part of that proximity is um, allowing the voices of the people who have been most impacted to be heard. 
right, to be seen and to be heard. Like, uh, and I, that's why I'm always thankful for Nancy for every time I have an opportunity to get um, my voice out there and be heard. And um, anybody who's formerly incarcerated or been down, been inside of that system, because it's so important that people actually hear from us, that people actually hear um, something other than the fear mongering that that normally that normally happens. And I I could point to a hundred. 200 men that are home that are doing great work in the community, but that is not the typical story that gets told, right? And so when people come in front of that story, people come in front of those people, they're like, they tell me, like, you're not what I expected. Like, you're, you're like, as though I'm some anomaly, you know, in this situation. And I'm like, I'm not. If not, there's thousands of us like this, but you just haven't met them. I can't think of anything more powerful than having someone like you in the room who's spent decades inside or someone who's spent 10 years in solitary confinement, right? I've been in in many conversations like that, and you just watch the eyes of the people in the audience processing and their perspective changing as they see that they can't tell you apart from from their brother or their friend and and I think that that's a it's a huge step in in the process of changing minds well, and, and Slow, the, flip but... side, the flip side of that I will say is also true which is that um is very very important to see formerly incarcerated folks that have in fact uh you know not only come come home and not only uh come home and and been you know amazing citizens and friends and neighbors and partners but but also to see the trauma that prison causes on people i, I you know i have uh, been in several situations and you mentioned solitary you know from you know Karamit's you know, incredible book on solitary, you, you you understand that people also don't understand the trauma that is being caused in their name inside. So, for example, when you meet people that have been let um, out of solitary and come home um, and you just physically sit next to someone like that and you watch what they are suffering through and you watch what they are enduring, um, uh, it is a it is a level of post-traumatic shock that 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 you just you, you really can't even imagine until you actually see it for yourself. And the fact that we don't see it or the fact that we are barred from seeing what the consequences of our policies are, um, I mean, as a as a citizen of this country, it's 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 outrageous because I believe it, that most citizens, if they saw uh, what the consequences of this were, um, even incredibly hard hearted people would be quite disturbed by and what we've this seen causes. That in some reforms, I, yeah. I mean, as someone who studied solitary confinement for a long time, people used to say to me, "You're never going to cultivate empathy for those people." But when thirty thousand prisoners went on a mass hunger strike in California to bring attention to their conditions of their confinement. Across the political spectrum, there was momentum and agreement that the harshness of those conditions was unacceptable because people had never seen. And I think when people actually see, you get an incredible mobilization around at least questioning whether those policies make sense, uh, if not really mobilizing to reform them. And and I think this is where uh, writers and humanists and artists have a role to play as Mm. well. So uh, whatever you think of it, shows like Orange is the New Black, it's really important brings an em- empathetic, if flawed in some respects, uh, um, uh, eye to bear on women's prisons, uh, f- for example, and um, in, in a sense, in a sense um, recognises the full humanity of each of its 
characters. Um, and uh, I think that, that, that the, the fact that that was a very successful uh, television series, uh, that, 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 that many Americans watched this show and actually people overseas as well, uh, this, this, this signals a kind of opening that there is, that the mass culture may be, may be shifting on this. And I think, think that's, that's equally important, stories that, that humanize those who uh, have been thought of as, as either subhuman or not thought of at all, or not taken into account at all. I'd like to ask each of you, before we close, what are you most concerned in the current climate today as we move forward from all of your study of history and all of your experience? What are you most concerned with and what are you most hopeful about in terms of the future of incarceration and imprisonment? So this is Heather Thompson. I am... I am deeply, deeply concerned that um, as a nation, we have a very, very limited uh, understanding of our own history. And and because of that, that we might uh, succumb to the rhetoric of uh, the current uh, administration, the current moment that suggests to us that we have a crime crisis when we don't. We have a violence problem in a lot of areas of our country that we could very much solve and need to solve, but we don't have a crime crisis right now, and we don't have a crisis of immigration, and we don't have a crisis in many spheres that we're being told we do. But if we don't see the ways in which believing the rhetoric and getting swept up in the political moment has devastating policy consequences, that that it will lead us once again to in turn an entire uh, group of people as we did in World War II, or will lead us to a different form of mass incarceration, perhaps through tethering at home, or perhaps if we don't pay attention to where we've been, I am very worried about where we'll go. Um, but I'm also deeply optimistic because even uh, listening to Troy, you know, it really reminds us that the thing about locking up two and a half million people and the thing about having, you know, 65 million Americans with a criminal justice record is that eventually uh, the criminal justice justice system is all of us. And and eventually, you know, it really does become clear that, that you know, this is a question of human beings and that human beings are not going to in perpetuity uh, accept being locked up and marginalized and removed and displaced. And so uh, even if we are in for some rough times, I, I'm optimistic that those times will not be permanent uh, and that they will also be undone. Uh, it, it will just be a struggle to get there. I'm, this is Rebecca McLennan. Um, that I'm really optimistic by uh, the levels of civic involvement that we've seen in the last um, six, six weeks especially and eight weeks, whereby um, people, pri private citizens, are taking to the streets either in organised or just spontaneous fashion and getting involved, calling their senators. There's an entire spectrum of actions that people who have not been involved in important issues such as uh, immigration... Um, are now getting involved in. And, and, and this has been true, I think, in criminal justice for the last six or seven years. There's been a, a kind of turning point where there's been mobilization. And I'm very encouraged by that. I don't think power gives up anything willingly. I think it takes social movements to change uh, um, policies, in, in particular, the policies that are at the heart of the sovereign state, the sovereign state's right to give and take away life. This is not something that the sovereign state's going to give up easily or change easily. 
that is the worrying thing. But the encouraging thing is that that there's a, there are whole generations of people who have not been politically involved before who are getting politically involved, and I see tremendous hope in that. I think we're it's the it's early days now, but uh, we'll, we'll, I think it's going to go places. This is Ashley Rubin. I would say one of the things that to me is most terrifying is the prospect of unintended consequences because historically we've had many, many moments over the past roughly 240 years where we've decided that the prison is a failure and then instead of getting rid of the prison, we end up making bigger prisons or different prisons or more prisons. And each time we have this moment where we think the prison is not working as a crime control institution and we've been talking about how it's not really a crime control and it's sustained by these other things that are going on like race control and social control but we continue this myth that it's about crime control and we end up making bigger prisons and kind of hide them in this rhetoric of crime control and then by contrast I would say one of the things that I'm also most optimistic about is again unintended consequences but the unintended consequences of mass incarceration and most of them have been incredibly bad and we can also argue about whether or not they're actually unintended but one of the unintended consequences is we're now at the point where we're having more and more people come home and this is something that is becoming a challenge for communities but it's also an opportunity and over the last 24 hours or so I've gotten to speak with many or not many but several um, really wonderful people like Troy and other uh, formerly incarcerated people, and realizing that as we have more people coming out of prison, and we're getting to this point where as mass incarceration, people have, people who have spent 20, 30, 40 years in prison, they're starting to come home in greater and greater numbers, um, people are going to have more contact with people who have been incarcerated. And I think this gets back to the the social empathy and the, the proximity issue. Um, people are going to have people in their family, in their neighborhoods, um, in their work lives that are going to be formerly incarcerated people, and they're going to start to see that these are, you know, normal people, that they're not too different. Like, you know, there are people like my brother who, you know, isn't incarcerated, but by the grace of God isn't. <laughs> um, and for some people, it's just random, and in some cases, not so random issues um, that come from deeply uh, structured um, issues. But uh, at the same time, like, they're not different people. And I think as we have more and more people coming home, other people are going to start to see that. This is Karamet writer, um, and I'm. I, I think there have been themes to what people are saying. I, I, I'm most concerned about the kinds of hidden incarceration that might continue to happen, especially given fear around crime, and in particular about a lack of transparency. I think there's incredible reforms happening at, at a local level around the country now around mass incarceration, a sense that it's too expensive and too harsh. Uh, but there's very little being done to build mechanisms of transparency to a allow the kind of oversight, like to put clear boxes in, in the middle of our communities that would maintain these reforms. And I think that's part of the of the failure of past reforms. And I think, you know, particularly privatization of immigration detention, for instance, is, is like a doubly opaque way to incarcerate or institutionalize people. And, and that's really scary. But I'm, I'm with everyone else that I take a lot of hope from the perversity of the fact that we've incarcerated so many people that now they're going to be back in our communities among us, kind of reshaping the way we assume those people would be and that you know as all of us who who've interacted with the formerly incarcerated can see you know it really it really changes your perspective and i and i think along with that technology and the ways that um it's so much easier to get information and to meet people uh from all different you know whether it's through social media and facebook or podcasts like this that it is it is much easier to share the kind of information that that will facilitate those empathetic changes today today than it was you know in in the historic times we've all examined and written about as far as what I worry about, I've 
in addition, the only thing that I would probably add to what everybody else has said is that my fear is that these new forms of control will continue to um, subject, you know, black and brown bodies to the degree that they have been. Um, what um, also I'm also like worried about a friend of mine, PJ, who is going for his um, detention hearing. He was um, paroled, but kept in um, immigration um, and possible extradition, not extradition, but um, deportation um, to um, the country he was born in, which is just wouldn't be safe for him um, to be there. Um, he's been incarcerated since he was 14 years old. Um, and I, I haven't met um, uh, just such a good guy like that you meeting him, you wouldn't know that he had been incarcerated. Um, so I worry about people like him. Um, on the good side, um, um, the conversations like this, um, like, like drive things home for me to be able to just engage, um, about conversations that matter and have people who are seriously looking at the issues in the same room, having these conversations and getting their word out, um, to the rest of the world. Give me a whole lot of hope. What concerns me the most about the, the future of the criminal justice system is how issues of crime and criminality are slowly becoming thought of as intrinsic or biological or natural aspects of individuals. And there are sadly several academics who are doing research trying to find, uh, you know, either the genetic cause of criminality or other types of physiological or biological processes that might lead someone to become a criminal and trying to using this research in service of the idea of being able to predict who's going to who's going to commit a crime before they actually do and this is this is a terrifying um development and i think the the um the prospect of of kind of going back down the road of thinking about crime in biological terms can have a devastating impact for communities and so I, i'm quite troubled by that development and I, I think it's going to take a lot of folks, um, academics, people, uh, 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 you know, other advocates, just everyone's going to have to come together to resist this idea and to really get away from the idea of locating crime and criminality in a body and try to think about the social and structural um, aspects of, of our world that put people in a, in a position to um, create or, or engage in antisocial behavior. Um, what I'm optimistic about is... Um, along the same lines of what Rebecca mentioned in terms of the renewed sense of civil, civic engagement. And right now that civic engagement is oriented towards one particular political challenge that we have right now. But I think there's a great opportunity to leverage that energy and enthusiasm to tackle other big social problems such as criminal justice and, and mass incarceration. So I think it's going to take a lot of creative work to get people to be just as energetic around these other social issues. But I think the possibilities are there. Well, that was quite a conversation. Um, my hope as the executive producer at Life of the Law is that this conversation will encourage our listeners to go and read your books, to read Heather Thompson's Blood in the Water, The Attica Rebellion of 1971 and its legacy, to read Rebe Rebecca McLennan's book, uh, The Crisis of Imprisonment, to read Kara Ryder's book, 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement, to follow Ashley Rubin's work at the University of Toronto 
and to pay attention to the work that's coming out of San Quentin Prison Report, which was founded by Troy Williams and who is going into San Quentin, not just today, but on a regular basis, to make it a realization that the men who are incarcerated actually have a voice, are, don't have to wait to come outside the walls to tell us who they are. In Studio San Quentin was produced by myself and Tony Gannon. We want to thank Rebecca McLennan, Asagi Obasagi, Karamet Ryder, Ashley Rubin, Heather Thompson, and Troy Williams for joining us in studio. You can find links to their books and articles on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Heather Thompson's tremendous book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy, recently was awarded the 2017 Pulitzer Prize. Next on Life of the Law, we'll go inside San Quentin State Prison for a conversation with men who are living locked up to talk about effective resistance and change behind the walls. The, the stronger heads came together, right? Uh, everybody wasn't in agreement. But then, you know, some was, like, like uh, the brother said, Brother G2, uh, some was willing to die, you know? And I think I was one of them. If that nurse hadn't came to my cell and told me that if I didn't, I told her, well, I'm going to come off Sunday. She said, you won't be alive Sunday. Because I couldn't even stand up. I was, I was gone. But if it took that to get out this shoe, then so be it. That's next on Life of the Law. This episode of Life of the Law was produced by Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. Our music was composed by Ian Koss. Jim Bennett was our engineer. If you're curious about the law and like binge listening, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. There are more than a hundred amazing episodes about people and the law. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law, including notes from our reporters and our listeners. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.